Hello, and welcome to episode 9 of the For the Love of Data podcast. I'm your host, Robert Furr, consultant with Capco Energy Solutions out of Dallas, Texas. And for this ninth uh, episode, we're going to be talking about something very special. We're going to be talking about Al, Al Gore. Now, a lot of you know, kind of infamously, that he was the father of the internet, but did you know that he had rhythms? Today, we're going to be talking about Al Gore rhythms. Oh, yeah. See what I did there? See what those of you guys that stuck with that all the way through just witnessed? That shudder in your body was you witnessing the worst pun ever. We are going to talk about algorithms today, but they are not actually going to have anything to do with the former vice president. It's going to have to do with how they invade and permeate your lives, some of them that you're aware of, at least on the surface. Uh, But I want to take a deep dive into what algorithms are, um, what goes into a lot of them, uh, some of the fun things that you can do with algorithms, uh, some things that you can do with machine learning, uh, as well as how it gets um, more involved in our day-to-day lives with the prices that we see on certain sites, uh, the news that we consume and when we search things on Google, uh, and also some of the serious consequences of it. So I've got a lot of content that uh, that built up this uh, podcast. So the show notes at fortheloveofdata.com will have all the links um, and some descriptions there, some video links. So please check that out for a, a little bit more detail and things that you can follow along as you're listening to this. Uh, So first off, let me just define what an algorithm is. According to Merriam-Webster, an algorithm is just a step-by-step procedure for solving a problem or accomplishing some end, especially by a computer. What that simply means is you take some inputs or features or variables, and you run them through a set of logic, and you get an output. That's what an algorithm is. Uh, But what that means is so much more in your daily life than you realize. So when you go to websites, all these algorithms are determining what information to present to you, what ads to show you. Um, When you go to other sites, they look at the places that you've been before and they determine what to show you, how to show it to you, how to form or transform their website. And they even use this to make decisions to try to predict what you're going to like the most, what you're most likely to click on as far as ads or content, all to try to drive you to either something they think you want to see or something that they want you to see um, in order to drive up their revenue. Uh, so first off, let me let me take a quick look at some of the inputs. Um, when you navigate things on the internet, different sites, a lot of algorithms are using a variety of different inputs, but some of the most common ones are census data or FICO scores, um, information that you've given them uh, to customize your Um, experience on their website or your preferences um, plus any information they can glean about you from other sites for instance when you are logged in on Facebook and then you go to another site that has a Facebook share or like button Facebook can track that you're there and record um, what you've seen and use that later on to make recommendations to you we'll talk about that a little bit later Um, And websites are constantly looking at ways to break our anonymity, which is called fingerprinting, so they can track us and serve us more relevant or lucrative ads. Now, there's a really great uh, 538 podcast on that, um, talking about how different uh, sites and different groups are playing a cat and mouse game with... um, like mobile device manufacturers where they can try to track you using the uh, percentage of battery that you have as you go across different sites because 
people's battery levels and the rate at which they degrade are a fairly unique way to track someone. So even if you're hopping on or off a VPN, in and out of private mode, or you're going between browsers, that's one small example of a way that they can track you uh, between sites and identify who you are, what you've seen, and um, try to run your information through uh, an ad auction to present more relevant ads that they think you're going to click. Um, so we'll talk a little bit more at the end. That's um, that's a pretty common practice, usually not um, not terribly nefarious, but uh, we'll talk about the potential for that later on. I want to start off with some of the fun uh, fun things that I've seen uh, with some algorithms just as I was doing some research for this. Um, in chess, algorithms are so good that humans haven't been able to beat a four CPU PC since about 2005. Uh, there was an NPR story and a few other things that I dug into which said uh, for about the cost of $100 worth of processing power right now, you can get a uh, uh, you can get a, a PC capable of running an algorithm that can beat the best grandmaster out there. And so now most uh, most chess grandmasters don't play computers because there's no point. They lose too easily. A lot of them will use computers as they train for matches with other humans. Uh, and they've actually created entire um, competitions where CPUs play CPUs uh, to determine what the best chess algorithm is out there. I found a really interesting uh, video on Rubik's Cube algorithms. And there's a group of people that have been able to um, use an algorithm to solve a Rubik's Cube and build a machine that can move a scrambled Rubik's Cube using that algorithm and completely solve it in less than uh, one second. So 0.887 seconds is the record for a machine that was set, I believe, earlier this year. Uh, and the record for a human is just over five seconds. Now, I used to be able to do Rubik's Cubes. I memorized a simple sequence of them. It would take me about two minutes. I have long since forgotten what that sequence is. And I was impressed with myself for that, but I've actually seen uh, someone that does competitions and it's mind-blowing to see how fast humans can do. I mean, the fastest one being five seconds is truly impressive, but to think that a, a machine can do that in less than a second is just mind-blowing. And even more surprising to me, I like to play Hold'em. I don't get to do that very often, um, but I did read... Uh, there was a group of scientists that solved all moves for heads up, uh, no limit hold'em, uh, which was about 3.16 times 10 to the 17th power moves. Um, and they have uh, an AI that uses this algorithm that you can actually play online. And you can basically win individual games against this, but if you play it for a period of time, it is highly unlikely that you will be able to uh, beat that algorithm. I mean, like 99.9% .9 likely that it's going to consistently beat you in a, in a match over time. So you truly have to know when to hold them and know when to fold them, and I would say against that algorithm, it's better to always fold them. Switching over to machine learning, uh, there's a really interesting podcast from uh, the folks at Partially Derivative. Jonathan Morgan did a post on Medium that I've got linked up in, uh, in, in the show notes here uh, where he talks about machine learning and the bias that it can contain. Now, 
a lot of times uh, what you do with machine learning is you build an algorithm, um, you feed it some test data, and uh, you try to build a model to make a prediction about something. And then you, um, you compare that against actual data, and then you run more uh, data that you, that you already have the results on um, to train it. And then when you're comfortable with that, you release it into the wild and start using it on completely new data uh, to make predictions about certain things. But you constantly have to be aware that the data that you use to train it can introduce some bias into the model. Uh, and so there's entire groups at places like Facebook and um, Netflix and a few other places that devote their time uh, to make sure that the algorithms they built for recommendations uh, don't have bias or remove as much bias as possible. But what Jonathan did was really interesting. He actually used the tendency for machine learning to develop a bias um, and turn it on its head. Uh, he looked at alt-right white supremacists, white supremacists, excuse me, on Twitter, and he tracked their degree of radicalization over time. Now he did this by train a, training a model with their tweets and analyzing the use of words like Jewish versus more mainstream usage. I've got a uh, a really interesting graph here that he uh, posted with his article. He's got a lot more great detail in there. I would highly suggest that you take a look at that. But for um, for a lot of common language, when you see a word like Jewish or Christian or Muslim, you'll see that associated with other uh, religious words like, like those three. Um, but when you look at the way that someone who's a member of the alt-right uses the word Jewish, it's more, more commonly associated in their speech with words like Zionist, communist, homosexual, leftist, anti-white, liberal, satanic. So they have a tendency to associate certain words that a larger, more mainstream group uh, doesn't, uh, doesn't really have any malfeasance with, they will take that word and associate it with some other very negative words that are more similar to their views. So he was able to find pockets of these users on Twitter and track them and their followers and start tracking the tweets that these groups had made over time. And he found that over the past, I think it was six to nine months, some of these groups have actually been getting more and more extreme in their thought. And so there, there is the potential there that these groups need to be, um, you know, you may want to monitor these to have a pulse on what these groups are thinking. Um, you know, if it's going to lead to something more than just freedom of speech and it's going to cross into some kind of physical altercations or, or something like that. Uh, and the end result is he got a lot of attention for this, took a lot of heat, uh, and, and was bore the brunt of a lot of angry tweets. And so you can hear more about that on the podcast. But it was a really interesting use where um, instead of trying to combat bias and take it away, he actually fed the, this natural language from these tweets into it, knowing that it would um, help him find and identify others like it to identify these different groups. So all in all... Really fascinating and, um, and, and really great thing that you could, uh, you could definitely dive into more and learn about. Now, switching over to uh, some of the ways that algorithms are used in our lives more, more uh, tactically on a day-to-day -day standpoint, um, let me talk a little bit about pricing and news and search. Uh, so Amazon uh, lists its results 
against competitors. They have an online marketplace where third-party sellers can advertise their goods as well as Amazon, the things that they, they stock um, directly. There's a group at ProPublica that made an article series called Breaking the Black Box, which talks about different algorithms, and they, uh, they were on the 538 podcast talking about some of their findings around pricing. Uh, and they discussed how Amazon describes its pricing engine uh, search list results as customer first, meaning they show the, uh, the best results to their customers. Uh, but when they did some research using blind testing, um, analyzing prime versus non-prime um, on a list of different items, they found that for non-prime users, um, when they search for uh, a variety of different items, Amazon will list its results over competitors, even when Amazon's prices, including shipping, are higher, despite the fact that it claims that its algorithm is customer-centric. Um, so what they found, I think, was on average it was maybe $7 more expensive uh, for the Amazon uh, item versus the other one, including shipping. Uh, and Amazon uh, has what potentially could be a valid reason. I mean, they say that uh, most of their users uh, put over $49 of, uh, of items in their, in their carts, which makes shipping free for them. So if their price with free shipping is lower than a competitor with shipping, they'll show theirs first. So it's sort of a gray area on how you define the, uh, the desired approach for an algorithm and what truly means customer first. Um, but at the end of the day, what it means is you really need to be aware of um, what data you're being presented on Amazon when you do uh, searches. You need to dig in and look at those things from other sell sellers and um, and just be cognizant of the fact that Amazon owns that marketplace and they uh, they a lot of the products on there are there so it's in their best interest to uh, to show theirs first and you could argue you know if you're gonna do business with Amazon they have a right to um, to to list their products first now you might wanna not necessarily tout that your algorithm is customer centric or customer first if that's the case but um, you know, it's, it's definitely a debatable item. They also talked about uh, Princeton Review and what it charges for some online classes. So online classes offered in different areas of the U.S. Um, you know, essentially should be um, the same fixed cost to produce regardless of the location you're taking it because it's online. Um, but they found that the same exact course might be offered for $6,600 in one zip code and $8,400 in other zip codes. And so when they started mashing that up with census data for those zip codes, uh, they found that they charged um, higher prices for zip codes with higher incomes, uh, but they also charged higher prices for zip codes with higher Asian populations, even if the uh, population in that zip code was not higher income. So you could find a zip code with a large amount of Asian uh, citizens with a lower income in one area, and they would get charged the full $8,400 price. Other areas that have higher incomes would be charged less. And um, so, you know, this is a really interesting case. They said that uh, this was a glitch when it was brought to their attention. I don't really know a lot more details behind that. Um, you could probably research and, and see more that they had to say there, but uh, but.
but it just goes to show you that um, just because you are presented with one price it doesn't necessarily mean that it is the same price that you get everywhere even for something like an online course that should be you know on the surface would seem to be the same regardless of where you are um, so you know it, it, it would behoove you to do a little bit of research on that, especially for a uh, you know if you're going to spend sixty six to eighty four hundred dollars for a course, you might want to uh, do some research about the availability in different places and uh, maybe search on some consumer websites or some crowdsourcing websites to see what other people pay um, before you take the plunge on something like that. Another part of our online daily lives that is often the result of algorithms is the way that we get our news and the way that we search for things. Uh, so when we're uh, using sites like Google or Facebook or LinkedIn, uh, one of the most common algorithms that they're using is called link analysis. It was developed in 1976, and it was actually first used by two search indexes other than Google in 1996, 97. So Google started using it in 1998, but a lot of people don't realize that the exact same algorithm that made Google famous and one of the richest companies on the planet was used in a very similar fashion by two other people and mentioned in the patent uh, that Google put forth back in back in the late 90s. Uh, so like I said, Google's PageRank, um, the way that it picks search results, Facebook's newsfeed, the way that they choose what you see, and LinkedIn's job and connection recommendations all use this type of algorithm. Uh, but one thing to note about these is there are a lot of sites that can cater information um, to you based on either where you're coming from or the data that you have given them as far as your preferences or the data that they've built up over time from you for what you've liked, what you've reacted to on Facebook, um, the amount of time that you've spent reading uh, certain content. And a lot of times these sites will either attempt to operate with good intentions or try to give you the uh, the best results that you want so they start out and say you know what kind of inputs can I look at to find the type of content that this user is most likely to enjoy and they may want to do that because they want to give you the best user experience they may want to do that because they want to keep you on their site for as long as possible to retrieve more ad revenue or they may want to use that information uh, to run ad auctions to try to present the most compelling ads to you that would get you to click on them and again lead to more ad revenue. Um, but what the end result of this can be, regardless of good intentions or not, they can start to present information to you that already caters to your pre-existing views. So instead of pre presenting you balanced holistic content, you start to get more and more niche in what you see um, and that can lead to an extreme view developing over time. So if you look at uh, if you look at news, uh, particularly newspapers, you know in the past newspapers had to cater to a huge group of people with a lot of different viewpoints so they would you know try to maintain some objectivity um, from a journalistic standard but also present uh, enough different articles that would appeal to their entire base of subscribers. But this day and age when we have micro-targeting, we have highly customizable, highly personalized 
news experience, on social media, basically anywhere that you're getting curated lists of tweets or what's trending or you know what's on Facebook news or Google news or anything like that, um, you can be led down a path of something that's not tailored toward the mainstream. It's not designed to give you you know, anything holistic or balanced views, it's going to uh, be catered on the things that you have previously liked um, over and over and over. And the danger with that, like I said, is, you know, you can develop, if, if all you read is highly conservative news all the time, and that's what you're interested in, and that's what people present to you, and you read that over and over, it's a vicious cycle that leads you to to be presented with that and um, there have been some studies that have shown that people's viewpoints can grow more and more extreme over time. Uh, some of the different sites that I did some research on and how they, some interesting inputs for their algorithms, the site Medium, which I love, if you haven't read any articles on there, it's great. Uh, a lot of really interesting content, but one of their main inputs is how long uh, it takes to read an article. And so they will make recommendations to you for different articles that are similar to the length of time that you'd like to read. Um, some sites will tailor content and content types and sharing buttons to you based on where you enter their site from. So if some sites see that you came from Pinterest, they may emphasize the Pinterest share button and take away some of the other ones um, for what they show you. Or they may show you more, you know, arts and craft related things if you came to them from that uh, than they would otherwise. Uh, they may show you more videos uh, versus more text articles. And so there's a really dangerous conception that when you go to a site, you're seeing the same thing that everybody else does or you're getting something objective when it could actually be highly tailored to where you're coming from, what they know about you from your previous history and what they think you're going to do on their site. So I know I've talked about this a few times. Uh, something specifically interesting about Facebook is they use hundreds of features or input variables when assigning a relevancy score to the posts that you see in your newsfeed. So they take a look at um, how long you spend reading certain things, uh, and they use that because you may not want to like a post for or a, an article for something that you find very offensive, but it could be very interesting to you, and they may want to present that information to you so you can continue to see interesting things that you may not like, but you may be interested in. Um, things that you do like, places that you go with share buttons, what your friends share and present, and they also uh, will downrank posts where people say, hey, check this out, link to this, share this. When someone specifically calls out that they want you to link or share something, that will cause that post to get downgraded in popularity because they see it as people trying to game the, uh, game the algorithm. And like I said before, Facebook can log your visit and tailor your content um, when you're visiting other sites, um, even, even if you're not going to them through Facebook. So this was one that I think a lot of people are aware. Hey, Google tracks my information. Hey, Facebook tracks my information. But I think a lot of people aren't aware that even when you are on sites that have nothing to do with social media, um, you're still 
making that information available to literally dozens of different groups to um, you know cater at auctions or to use later on when you go and visit their site uh, to as an input to their algorithm and this leads me to another set of algorithms that have more serious consequences so there was a uh, Kathy O'Neill uh, is a journalist that used to be a quant and she came out with a book called Weapons of Math Destruction. Not mass destruction, but math destruction. She was on a recent podcast with 538 uh, and talked about some serious consequences that she sees with algorithms. Um, so she defines an algorithm as a weapon of, mass of math destruction or a WMD if it's widespread secretive and if it has the potential to do great harm. Uh, one example of this that she talked about in a little bit of detail is car insurance and the way that they weight FICO scores versus drunk driving convictions. And she actually found that in, in at least one instance there was a car insurance company in Florida that would charge you a higher insurance premium on your car if you had a low FICO score and no drunk driving conviction than they would if you had a high FICO score and a drunk driving uh, conviction. And that one seems a little bit counterintuitive to me. I mean, I, I understand um, all, all things else being equal. You know, typically a FICO score could indicate someone that's a little bit more responsible, maybe a little bit more mature. Um, but when you contrast that with the, uh, you know, the stark realities of a, of a drunk driving uh, past, you know, which one is going to have more of an impact on your your ability to drive? And maybe there's a lot more to that algorithm, uh, but that was a pretty shocking one for me. Another one uh, was a, a company called Kronos. Now, Kronos is a small big data HR company. I know small big data company is kind of a oxymoron. Um, but they are a company that a lot of other companies hire and outsource some of their uh, job application processes to. And they will screen employees, uh, and they actually present a personality test as part of their screening of candidates. And um, I forget the person's name, but there was a job applicant um, who had been diagnosed as bipolar. And he spent some time recuperating from that, had some personality tests done um, while he was in treatment for that. And then when he left treatment, he went out to apply for jobs. And he applied at Kroger and several other places. All of them uh, screened him with person the same personality test. He uh, answered it very similarly in all of them uh, and didn't get calls back for jobs from any of them. His father was actually a lawyer. He started looking into this, and he found that all of these different major employers had outsourced their application process for at least this aspect to Kronos. And it gets into a very sticky area. I think he actually brought a class action lawsuit against them, or maybe a lawsuit just on behalf of his son, um, saying that by screening with a personality test that could potentially isolate people with something like bipolar disorder, you are violating the Americans with Disabilities Act. And I don't know the result of this court case. I think it may still be in progress. Um, but this is a place where, uh, you know, they describe that this 
type of algorithm was undertaken with the best of intentions. Its intent was to turn over the hiring process to an algorithm, to a computer, rather than a person who may have some kind of bias based on the name they see on a resume, uh, you know, what they perceive the gender to be, what they perceive the ethnicity to be. And so by moving it to an algorithm, that should go away. But if your trade-off is that you are potentially, uh, you know, screening people out based on a mental health challenge that they may have already been treated for or may not be there, uh, or maybe something that's illegal to uh, to screen for at that point, um, then you know it gets really dicey. And the and the point with all of these is um, you know the 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 price you pay for car insurance, um, you know your ability to get a job or not, can all be seriously impacted by the algorithms that are used to make those decisions. I didn't go into this in detail, but there are also some algorithms that are being used to recommend people for parole or not. And being able to understand, A, that you're being tracked by these algorithms and decisions about you are being made as a result of these, that's something that a lot of people aren't aware of and they need to be aware of. Understanding what the criteria are to the extent possible and what your abilities are to... Uh, contest or to ask for, you know, some kind of follow-up or more information about it, uh, I think would be a very useful um, thing to have in a lot of these situations. Uh, forget the podcast, but someone was talking about the parole one, and since that one is a, you know, basically a, an algorithm used to undertake a government function, having that be something that is, uh, you know, essentially published what the what the um, what the process is would be a, a useful thing. I understand um, for a lot of the algorithms out there, people don't want to do that for proprietary reason, and that makes a lot of sense. Um, but we do need to have some way to acknowledge that algorithms that play a huge part in our lives and have the ability to impact us in a significant way um, People need to be aware of that, and people need to know, um, you know, what their options are to either seek a second opinion, um, try to achieve their goal in a different way, either, you know, after they've had a chance to correct some of the things that an algorithm may define as an issue. So as you navigate through Facebook, um, through your newsfeed, through your LinkedIn recommendations, through Google when you do a search, Think about the algorithms that are going on behind the scenes and curating what you see, what you're about to click on um, when you go to your homepage for Google News or Fox News or wherever you get your content. Think about um, how the content, how the ads, how the, uh, the links that you see, how the layout of the nav bar could be changing based on your view versus someone else's. Um, when you're doing your e-commerce shopping on a place like Amazon, um, take a look at some of the details from time to time and try to be objective about your different options there. And more importantly, try to keep your pulse on you know some of these aspects of algorithms and how they're changing. There's some sites out there that track Facebook's newsfeed algorithm and, and the major changes that happen to it. Facebook publishes some of the information about the changes that they're going to make. Uh, take a look at the show notes that I have out there and you'll see a lot more about algorithms from 
like I said, the way you're being tracked um, in your online activities um, to the specific sites to the way that somebody uh, determined how to how to crack every move in No Limit Hold'em. Uh, you can use this information uh, yourself for algorithms that you're creating or you know decisions that you have to make. You can build off of some of this great work. And don't get me wrong, I, I mean I think these algorithms have been extremely useful and in a society where we've got more and more information coming at us all the time, you know, the big data, volume, veracity, uh, all the, tri the, the three V's are going to keep growing and growing. We're going to have to have ways where we can curate that information and make meaningful decisions uh, without, without getting bogged down from the deluge of content. Um, but we need to constantly be aware of the fact that the people that make those algorithms may have bias. Um, it may be uh, inconsequential. It may be inadvertent. You know, they may set out with the most good intentions, but over time, that bias could start um, creating an undesirable experience. Um, or it may be something more serious. Uh, you know, it may be a bigger part of your life that uh, the impact of the results of those algorithms is much more important. And lastly, something that I didn't really talk about here, but you know, Facebook and Google and Amazon. At the end of the day, a lot of them have good intentions. They want to give you the, the best experience possible. Um, or at a very minimum, you know, they're, they're trying to use that information to make more money on ads or just from presenting you that content. But I don't believe they're doing anything genuinely nefarious. However, other people could be using all of the same information on you um, to do more... Uh, more malicious activities, you know, trying to target you for phishing scams or trying to, um, you know, on a less reputable site, sucker you into a purchase that is significantly worse than a $7 price difference between shipping on Amazon's good versus, goods versus something else. So again, be mindful of the, the capacity of these algorithms and what they can do and do your research. Be aware of these things and think about how these permeate our lives. So I think I've droned on for long enough now about rhythm and all the rhythms that Al Gore has. I hope you've enjoyed uh, this breakdown of algorithms and, and the different aspects of them. If you have, please leave me comments on Twitter at Love of Data uh, or my personal Twitter at uh, Robert Fur or uh, on the comments on the show notes on ForTheLoveData.com. And if you have topics that you would like to talk about, if you're interested in joining me uh, to chat about a topic on an episode, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, so please hit me up on any one of these mediums. Also, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or leave me a rating there. And until next time, this is Robert Furr signing off.